Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 46. My name is David Noe. As always, I'm here in the Vomitorium, Vomitorium East, with my good friend, Dr. Jeff Winkle. And Jeff, how are you doing this week? Oh, I like the deliberateness of you really emphasizing you asking me how I'm doing. Yes, I'm right. in in fact attempting to pretend I care. You're doing a good job. You're almost there. Thank you. Okay. And well thank you for asking. Thank you. I'm doing I'm doing great today. I'm feeling good. I'm not wearing my usual grubby t shirt this week. I've I came from teaching so I have a, actually a shirt with buttons. Right. It always makes me feel like I need to you know, raise it up, you la- wearing raise the level. Sandals, crocs, Birkenstocks. I've got kind of these fancy shoes my wife bought for me. So they're kind of they're leathery. Those are nice. They're, they're, they're brown. They scream Florence. <laughs> they, yes, exactly. So what are we talking about today before oh, we get to our shout out? We uh, we have a special guest coming in today, um, a good friend of ours, former colleague, uh, uh, mentor, uh, Dr. Ken Bratt. Did you say Paul Blart? I, didn't, I said Ken Bratt, not Paul Blart. Ken Bratt, okay. <laughs> You're really hoping Paul's going to stop by. I'm hoping. <laughs> Kevin James, what a funny man. <laughs> right, and, and so Ken's going to be talking to to us today about about uh, archaeology, ancient Philippi in particular. It's going to be great. Yes, there's a lot in stories. I think he's going to talk a little bit about some funny stories about uh, young Jeffrey Winkle as and, a student. And maybe even young David Noe. I think so. Right, yeah. But before we get into it... You've got the shout out for I us do. Today. This yes. one is a delight. This goes to Mrs. Victoria Crane. Victoria. Victoria has a nice Latin name, doesn't she? She does. Nice. She says she is living in South Carolina, originally from Maine. She has been homeschooling her kids for the last five years. Just finished a master's degree. Wow. Nice. Wow. With, with five, li- with, uh, with, oh, she's homeschooling kids and getting a master's degree. And finishing a master's degree. How do you do it? I don't know. From Liberty University, she has uh, taught and hopes to teach again history in the classroom. She says, quote, I traveled a lot in my youth, not having been schooled. Nice participle. Not having been schooled by ad nauseum. Cry face, cry face. Thanks again. Thanks again. Excellent. Well, hopefully she can travel more in the future. Yes. Having been schooled. Exactly. And thank you so much, Victoria, both for listening, for keeping interest in these important and ancient things alive. We're so grateful. And Dave, you have our opening quote, I believe. All right. For our opening quote today, we have something entitled Archaeology and St. Paul's Journeys in Greek Lands. Who's this from, Jeff? This is from William McDonald. It's from an uh, article from the biblical archaeologist back from uh, 1940. 1940. Yeah. A few things have changed since then, haven't they? Yeah, maybe not a whole lot at Philippi. Probably not. Right. (laughs) Shall I read that? Yeah, please do. Okay. So here we go. Although there is good reason to believe that the church at Philippi made steady progress from its founding by St. Paul, the archaeological discoveries relative to the Christian community during the early period are quite rare. One interesting inscription in Greek, dated with probability in 262 or 263 AD, records, quote, Aurelius Capito, junior presbyter of the Universal Church, set up this monument to his own parents and his own wife, Bebia Paula, and to his dearest son, Elpidius. Ah, this is the earliest evidence, archaeological evidence we have, or the article suggesting of the um, of the Pauline Church in Philippi. yes, I don't know if it's okay. the earliest, but it's it's one of the earliest inscriptions. Okay, 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 yeah. And it records this fellow Aurelius Capito. Uh, he had an office in the church, right, junior presbyter, and uh, a monument to his extended family. 
And uh, so one of the things we're going to ask Ken in just a minute here is how the uh, inscriptionary evidence from the Greco-Roman, the pagan world, before the arrival of Christianity, how some of those features are carried over into Christian practice. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I think this is a good a good time to welcome in our, our yes. special guest today. It's a good segue. Yes. Welcome again to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you. So to tell the listener, Ken is a former colleague of both uh, David and I, uh, a good friend, a, a mentor. We both had him as a, as a professor uh, for many, many years. And we're really excited to have you here to talk about to talk some archaeology and talk right. some uh, early Christianity. Tell some stories about Jeff as a young man. Oh, just just me? <laughs> well, I don't know if Ken is going to be able to think of any embarrassing <laughs> oh, anecdotes. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's very nice to be with you both and really satisfying to have two students who have made careers in classics and done so well and contributed so much. So as we start out a little bit on the, um, the history of Philippi, uh, there are a few items we'd like you to interact with a little bit, Ken. Share your own particular perspective on the uh, the research, the very superficial research we've put together. Apparently, the city dates only back to about 360 BC when it was uh, settled by colonists from the island of Thassos. That's right. There are some Neolithic traces in the region, but as a settlement, as a real city or village, uh, it only goes back to the 4th century before Christ. And have you been to Thassos? Yes, yeah. Thassos is just a stone's throw off the coast in the Aegean. Um, maybe an hour ferry ride within sight of Kavala, where uh, Paul landed on his way to Philippi. Mm-hmm. Oh, in my myth class, we were, we were just talking about the myths of uh, of Cadmus. And so in many tellings, Thassos is one of his brothers that gives up on the search for Europa and founds his colony on that island. Did, did you that had any kind of you know, imprint on the remains there or the history of that site? No. There are a lot of remains on Thassos and a number of early Christian churches that are well-preserved. Hmm. But um, And it's a beautiful island, wooded and beautiful. Also famous for its wine, I think, Thassos. Yeah, very good wine. Yeah, I haven't, I've never been there, never enjoyed that, uh, but that's quite interesting. And then, of course, um, the city was refounded in the middle, well, I guess just a few years after that, uh, by Philip II. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think I misspoke myself a minute ago. I, I, Crenides was originally founded in the 6th century, okay. refounded by Thassians in the 4th century, and then refounded by Philippi, by Philip II, king of Macedon, and uh, father of Alexander the Great, who modestly renamed it after himself. So the name Philippi derives from that settlement in 356. Right. Does he just, does he refound, is this just part of kind of the, as Macedon is expanding at this time and it just gets... It, it is certainly part of his strategy to control the road that leads to the best port in the area. Right. But in addition, this is not, the site of the city is not far from Mount Pangaean, which is rich in gold and silver. And Philip was exploiting those mines for his very beautiful coinage, which exists. Is that also, I imagine that's the source for all the, uh, the things found at Vergina? Yes. Yeah. A lot of the gold from Vergina comes from Mount Pangaean, okay. and Philippi is the closest settlement to that mountain. Okay. So Vergina, those are the tombs of the kings. Yes. And uh, maybe that will be a good episode. Oh, future episode. We've been down in there before, and uh, actually, I believe, when I was there in 2013 with Dr. Ken Bratt, our distinguished guest... There's a sign that says right there, no pictures. And we got down there and Ken looks around and says, tour guide's gone. I'm taking a picture. <laughs> Inside the museum. Yes. Way it, down it, in it the... It wasn't 
no no pictures with Flash. It was no pictures There's at no all. No pictures at oh, all. Man, that's dr- that's draconian. Crowded museum. They don't want you pausing to oh, photograph. Okay, okay. That's okay. a that's a sympathetic explanation <laughs> for. Uh, now the city um, at the time, I understand, there was a, a large marshland. The river was not keeping its banks, so Philip drained that entire area to make it habitable. Yes, yeah. The whole southern half of the city would be marshland if it weren't drained. And uh, to build uh, circuits of walls, Philip had to drain the southern half. And then he built all these walls in the fourth century, and they're in restored condition. They're still there. And eventually this was located on the Via Ignatia. So this is the, the long road that is intended, correct me if I'm wrong, to stretch from Asia all the way to the Adriatic. Yes. Uh, so the Via Ignatia was built actually in the fourth, in the second century before Christ, after Macedonia became a Roman colony. But it sits on a pre-existing road in this region that Philip was controlling by setting his colony here. Hmm. Okay. Okay. In my study of, of, of Roman history, uh, you know, when I hear the the name Philippi, of course, I think of the famous battle uh, yep. outside in in, uh, in in 42 BC. Where the conspirators—it's kind of the last gasp of the, the conspirators who who, uh, who who assassinated Caesar are, are taken down there, right? First Brutus, uh, first Cassius, actually defeated by Mark Antony, and a day later, Brutus defeated by uh, the future Augustus, then known as Octavian. So the heirs of Julius Caesar um, suppressed the armies of the two conspirators who survived and fled to Greece. And it happened in the plain west of Philippi, after which it became a military colony and consequently began to grow very rapidly. Until this time, it was a small village, but with the, uh, with the Roman settlement of veterans on the site where they had presumably fought, Philippi began to grow into a major Roman center. This is a common practice for uh, victorious Roman generals that instead of paying their veterans in cash, they give them land holdings. And the place to put them is anywhere near a dangerous border. Uh, Hmm. Settle the the old doughty soldiers there and give them 40 acres and a mule. And from that point, you say, the city began to expand rapidly. Mm -hmm. Now remind me, how did the conspirators wind up there? I know they fled to Greece... Yeah. Um, but why that area um, in northern Greece? That I think they originally intended to make their stand on the west coast of Greece, on the Adriatic coast. Uh-huh. But Philip, I should say, uh, um, Antony and Octavian arrived with such heavy forces that they fled east, uh, presumably to escape into the Aegean, and they were trapped at Philippi okay. before they could uh, make their escape. So uh, it's beautiful terrain for fighting. I mean, there are low hills in which you can wait until a suitable moment. There's marshy land that you can take advantage of if you're um, a strategic planner. But in both cases, Antony's forces and, and Octavian's forces were much better prepared and trained. Incidentally, Horace, I believe, was a participant in this battle, and so was, I think Cicero was in, in, at least he was in Brutus's company. Yeah, prior to that, he died in 43, so he would not have been at Philippi, but Horace... Yeah, that, the he famous would have been a terrible soldier anyway. Horus? <laughs> what? No, Cicero. <laughs> oh, I don't think Horus was anything. <laughs> well, probably not. Right. <laughs> Remember, he imitated the uh, Archilochian tag. I threw away my shield. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> at, at Philippi. Exactly. So then the city was re- was uh, refounded, which I think was just giving it a title. 
Uh, in 30 BC, when Octavian um, gained control of the, the entire Roman state, and then it got this long, exaggerated, flowery title, the Colonia right. Victrix uh, Philippensium, or the Colonia Augusta Iulia Philippensis, mm-hmm. uh, meaning I own this city, I'm in charge now. It's, right. it's kind of the, the point he's making. And one of the earliest um, inscriptions from the Augustan period records that Augustus and Livia were honored in an imperial cult. It might have been late in his reign. It might even have been somewhat posthumous. But there seems to have been an imperial cult temple at Philippi, possibly the northeastern temple on the Forum, as early as the Augustan period. Subsequently, Claudius and Antoninus Pius and Faustina were also honored with imperial cult at Philippi. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder why that was a, a prominent or popular place for the giving of uh, divine honors. Do you have any idea? Well, presumably the veterans would have had a very positive attitude toward the victors, obviously. And as the town developed into a prosperous Roman community, um, I'm sure the imperial cult was a status symbol. So the largest buildings on the forum actually are two matching temples at the northern corners. So, So it's constituency. I think so. Yeah, I think for the constituency, it would have been a sign of prosperity and honor. So very popular with the constituents in the same way that uh, if you are a Republican presidential candidate, you have to visit the villages in central Florida. You know, this massive retirement community yeah. because it's a constituency stronghold. Now, if I we can just go back to the, the, the battle for a second, like archaeologically speaking. Um, have things been found from that battle? The sites of the two camps have been archaeologically identified. I don't think there's a whole lot of debris on the battlefield itself. But in the low hills to the west of the main entrance to Philippi, from the west, um, the camps have been found. So we have a a pretty solid idea of kind of where things were lined up. Yes. Okay. The map is there. Uh, I have never actually visited the campsites, and I'm not sure the excavations have been left open. It might have been recovered. Probably on private territory now, but at any rate, the camps have been located. I remember driving by there in the bus, and I think you pointed, that's the general vicinity of Philippi, so I snapped a quick photo through the blurry bus window, but it's incongruous because I read and study these battles, and they sound so impressive, but many of them... There aren't any remains, of course, because what are you going to find after, you know, a leather strap, a, a spearhead, something like that? All right. that's long yeah. lost. Right. One Remember Trasimene was like that. Yeah. One interesting exception to that is at the Battle of Actium, which was largely a naval battle, the bronze prows of a number of the ships have been excavated from the seabed. Right. Uh, but that's only been made possible in recent decades as the uh, archaeological skills of, um, uh, you know, uh, finding things underwater have developed. Right. I have a blurry picture of Actium out the bus window also, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, you know, uh, this reminds me of a, of a funny story. It's, it's, it's barely applicable. We'll but, be the judge of that. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I had a, a fellow grad student uh, way back in the day who did a summer doing underwater archaeology off the coast of, um, of, of Israel, Lebanon. Mm. And she came back to do a, a presentation on it. And she was talking about how the um, the moving of the of the of the plates of the earth had kind of disturbed uh, the area and made it very difficult. Mm-hmm. And she meant to say that it, it was you know this was hard due to uh, tectonic activity. But every time she said it was due to Teutonic activity. <laughs> so we're all imagining these little Germans 
down there moving things around. Right. right. Uh, if they could, they probably would. Right, right, exactly, right. They'd want to organize it. Teutonic activity. Exactly right. Every time. That's an interesting story. Do, do you know where those prows at Actium, where they've ended up? Uh, there is a museum at Actium, well, Nicopolis. Um, Augustus, Augustus's city and the monument on which these captured prows would have been displayed has been found. Okay. Uh, but the prows found underwater, I, th- I suspect, are in the local museum. I've never seen them because they've only been discovered within the last, I would say, 20 years. Bill Murray from the University of Southern Florida, I believe, is the excavator who published them. Huh. That's the guy from Caddyshack, right? <laughs> Bill Murray, right? Yeah. No, no, I like imagining that. No. So Nicopolis is mentioned in the Book of Acts. I think Paul. Mm-hmm. I think Paul stopped there. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Paul, can we segue oh, into the? That was nice. Thank you. Nicely done. <laughs> can we segue into the the next era in the history of the city of Philippi? Sure. So sometime around forty nine or fifty, and uh, these events are recorded in Acts sixteen. Uh, Paul has uh, a vision or a dream of a man from Macedonia. And uh, I'm sure you've thought about this passage, Ken, and studied it, taught it. The commentators seem to say that Paul would have recognized him because of his dress. He would have had a specific Macedonian uh, attire or maybe his accent. Of course, in dreams, you know things that you, you, know, you don't normally know. But do you have an opinion on how, how would Paul have known this was a, a weir Macedonicus yeah, uh, as far as I know, there was no distinctive Macedonian dress. I mean, in, in battle, they wore a distinctive helmet, at least in the Hellenistic period. Certainly the accent might have been a tip-off. I remember Otto Menardus, I think it is, argues that this was actually Luke appearing to Paul and that Luke was a native of the city of Philippi. I'm not sure anyone else has embraced that theory. But uh, conceivably, it might have been a Macedonian that Paul had encountered previously, even though he had never been to Macedonia before this particular trip. So a Macedonian who visited him maybe in Jerusalem or one of the other cities, and then Paul recognized him pleading, come, come to Europe. Sure. And yeah. and preach. Interesting. Now I know that the the, the uh, when you know, Philip was coming up and there was rumblings in the north, you know, down in Athens. Uh, the Athenians had some distinctive kind of stereotypes about who the Macedonians are. Are they, are they even Greek? You know, they, they drink milk for goodness sake, and you <laughs> they know, wear skins. Right. So, but, but you know, that's that's you know, that's four hundred years before this. You know, what right. what would a Macedonian man? Uh, how how had that changed mm. by the time we get to the first century? Um, of the, if those kinds of stereotypes or distinctions had had mm-hmm. disappeared, and yeah, I would think that the intervening Hellenization would have tended to smooth out uh, right. local distinctives. Alexander's success would have perhaps tended to flatten some of the uh, qualities characteristic of individual city-states, right. created a kind of pan-Hellenism, perhaps. Perhaps so, except I think in the spoken language, um, regional dialectical differences are likely to persist even across generations. Yeah, yeah We dealt with the Lycaonian story from Acts 14, uh, Philemon and Baucus, and uh, Paul and Barnabas there in, in Lystra. Uh, so that, that seems corroborative of what you're saying. Yeah. So Paul responds to this vision, and he sails across the strait there, and he steps foot in Europe for the first time, a momentous moment, the gospel comes to Europe, and he lands at Kavala, or Kavala? Kavala, ancient Neapolis, new town. 
10 miles east on the Aegean coast, a beautiful harbor, which is still a major harbor in the north. Yes. So I went down there with our other colleague, Young Kim. Oh, you did? Do you think I'd be able to uh, pronounce it <laughs> since I've been there? Koala is the Turkish name. I think it derives from the word for horse, and I'm not sure quite what the connection is. Hmm. I remember that Young was intent on eating octopus. We've got to get the octopus. Oh, he, he never misses. If there was He's a chance, he'd seafood. That's right. That's right. That's so what the, I the, mostly the, remember. The Greeks still use the Turkish name? They do. Yeah. It's still known as Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And much of the, uh, or I should say, large stretches of the Via Ignatia are preserved on the hill just above Kabbalah. So you can actually walk the same road that Paul would have walked, presumably. And he would have gone there from Kabbalah northwest, you say, approximately uh, 10 miles? west, due west. Okay. Um, Maybe a slight bit north. And when he arrived in uh, Philippi, there's the famous story of his encounter with Lydia mm-hmm. on the on the Lord's Day, or maybe it was on the Saturday, down by the river. Um, what would he have seen, uh, do you think, as he's traveling west from Kavala and he approaches the city of Philippi? What kinds of things would he have seen? Well, we, he would have seen the Acropolis for certain. It's the most distinctive feature on the uh, landscape. In fact, you can see the Acropolis of Philippi from the hill at the top of Kabbalah, which is built around a kind of bowl, a theatrical bowl uh, facing the sea. Um, he certainly would have seen the Acropolis. He would have also seen Philip's walls. And immediately inside the wall, as he entered through the so-called Neapolis Gate, the eastern gate of the Via Ignatia, he would have seen Philip's theater, which is still standing. It's used for summer uh, performances. And um, I think it seats about 15,000 people. Uh, that theater was constructed in the f- fourth century when Philip founded the town, and it was still functioning in the Roman period. So uh, beyond the theater, he would have encountered the forum, which we can talk about later. Uh, he would encounter the, the women outside the wall near water in what's called a prosauke, a place of prayer. And presumably this does not have an architectural form, but is simply a location in which Jewish people who lack a minion, Mm -hmm. 10 males, Mm -hmm. for a proper synagogue service would have gathered to pray. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the Sabbath day, presumably, he has heard that there are women who gather for prayers to the Jewish God, and uh, he finds them there, presumably outside the western wall, Mm -hmm. which would would have been entered under an arch constructed by Augustus. Only the foundations remain today. And there along that uh, river, he has his first encounter with Lydia and the other women of Philippi. The purple cellar. So mm-hmm. when uh, Young and I were there, Dr. Young Kim, in um, 2015, I believe, uh, we visited the baptistry, which yes. marks the spot. It's octagonal, I think, which is the standard for mm-hmm. um, Orthodox baptistries. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the likelihood that it's in the near proximity of where this encounter between Paul and Lydia took place? Well, we know only that it was outside the city and near water. And that is the closest water to the city wall. Uh, Further out to the west is the Genghetes River, which is larger. And it's conceivable that if he walked, let's say, a half a mile further, he might have encountered Jewish women there. The likelihood of its uh, of the site being near the modern baptistry of Lydia, I think, is reasonably high. 
but um, unprovable mm -hmm. because no archaeological evidence has been found. Uh, the, the modern town is known as Lydia Town, mm -hmm. and the baptistry is the baptistry of Lydia. It's a lovely place. Mm -hmm. Facilities have even been built into the stream where baptisms can be, right. can be conducted, and tourists who come in the winter uh, avoid this <laughs> possibility, but in the summer, I can imagine Anabaptists might wish to be rebaptized in, in the water. When you've gone with, with, with groups or just on your own, have you, have you seen that taking place? I've never seen a baptism take place there because most of my visits have been during the month of January, which you know, it's not very suitable. But I have seen um, christenings take place. In fact, the last time I was there in 2019, there was a birthday party, a christening party, a name day party, as the Greeks call it, for a young man named Georgius, who I presume had been baptized there and was being celebrated uh, had been baptized inside the building and, and was being celebrated uh, in his honor. I think it's a beautiful spot. It's uh, idyllic and like a park that's well-maintained. Of, of all the places, I mean, you've been to Greece so many more times than I have, but of all the times I've been to Greece, I think probably this is one of the best-maintained spots of the different sites. I, I like how it's, it's kind of, it's integrated into the natural surroundings. You know, it's mm -hmm. not just some giant, you know, sometimes those monuments will just kind of obscure or, or can destroy any kind of imagination of what it may have looked like originally and that, that that's a really nice one that's just kind of integrated into the into the river yeah definitely yeah. and there are very rich mosaics inside the building in the narthex of the building there's a mosaic floor tracing all of paul's journeys yes, with every city uh, the second missionary journey with every city labeled and on the um, on the drum above the baptistry which is just a marble chalice in the center of the structure um, our mosaic panels, eight of them, showing the episodes of Acts 16 in sequence. Yes, I remember that now. We'll have to put that in the show notes yeah, so yeah, people yeah. can see what we're talking That's about. Right. Mm -hmm. Ken, what is your sense of kind of how the local Greeks uh, or just Greeks in general think about places like these? You know, it's my sense is, um, you know, from my travels there and the people that I've met is in terms of their faith tradition, a lot of, you know, every Greek will consider themselves Orthodox, but very few go to church. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how do, how do the locals still feel about these places? How are they still important to kind of their own notion of who they are and their heritage, or is it mostly just tourists coming to these places? I don't think it's mostly tourists. Um, uh, these places are active places of worship, and some churches are very well um, maintained and, um, and used. Mm -hmm. I've seen the Church of St. Demetrius at Thessaloniki, for example, packed really? with women, children, and fathers. That the men are the least likely to be there, but um, so I think it still plays a key part, not only in their national and cultural identity, partly to set themselves apart from the Turks who ruled their land for 400 years, and from whom they like to distinguish themselves in so many ways. Uh, but the churches also play an important part as pilgrimage centers, and, and Greeks will visit these sites that have special connections with New Testament figures as a kind of piety, a kind of ritual piety. So after we move uh, from the baptistry and we go back into town, you might say, Paul has the famous encounter uh, with the young woman, the Pidiscane, who has a, a spirit of the, of the pitho. And this, of course, this incident uh, will lead to his imprisonment and then mm -hmm. the famous encounter with the Philippian jailer. Should we put Ken on the spot and ask him to read some of uh, Acts 16 here in the Greek? In the Greek? Yes. Yeah, Can you do that do. for us? Sure. sure. Would you like to hear some Greek? Agenetor de poreomenon 
Hemon eston proselken by disken tina ekusan pneuma puthona hupantesa humin. Hetes ergasian polen pareken tois curios autois mantuomene. Haute katakaluth oh multisyllabic <laughs> katakaluthusa to paulo kahemin ekradzen legusen hutoi hoi anthropoi duloi tu thautu hupsistu eusen. Hoitenes katagelusen humin hodon soterias. Tuto de epoie epipolas hemeras. Diaponethes de paulos e epistrepsas to pneumati apen parangolosoi enomati Jesu Christu excelthen apautes. Kai excelthen aute haute te hora. Yeah, very nice. nice. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Ken. Jeff, you want to read the translation? Sure. This is from the ESV, right? Yes. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, this is my favorite part, had become greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Yeah, exactly. I like that part too, because it seems to suggest, Luke seemed to suggest that Paul didn't maybe originally intend to uh, cast out the spirit, the demon, but then after three days of uh, listening to this, he became so greatly annoyed that fine, okay, you know, turns around and the miracle is wrought instantaneously. Right. Or maybe, you know, he... Uh, it, this is messing up his plan of how to approach the town. Oh, that's you want, a good You want thought. some little girl behind you saying, announcing this is like, you know, mm-hmm. he wants to... Something want, more subtle. Something a little more subtle, right? He might be at a booth making tents, too, it, because right. presumably he is supporting himself along this travel. Right. It's not going to be good for business. Mm-hmm. This is not good for business. <laughs> As he did in... <laughs> right, right, right. As he did in Corinth. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the owners then became, uh, you can, you know, listener, you can go read Acts 16 in Greek or whatever language you want. Uh, were quite upset because now they've lost their livelihood. And so they gin up a crowd, and um, it usually takes a lot of gin to get a crowd going. <laughs> and they throw Paul in uh, jail at that point. It's Ephesus all over again, right? Yes. With the, the Demetrius and the, the silversmiths. Right. Everywhere Paul goes, he's ruining the local business. Right. So they have to take some revenge. <laughs> yeah. He's thrown into jail, and of course, the, the first time I visited, um, I really wanted to see the, the site where Paul was imprisoned. And so after the break, in just a moment, we're going to ask Ken, is there any chance if that's the real site where Paul was in prison? But that's after the break. Today's episode is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Based in Portland, Oregon, Mark Helweg and his crew are solving all of your brew-based and aesthetic problems. Jeff, you got some aesthetic problems? I, I, I used to. Yes. No longer. I have the Ratio 6 machine on my countertop in my kitchen. It's a, it's a beautiful looking, uh, just a, a work of art. It makes perfect coffee every morning. It's reliable. I love it. How many stages would you say it has? It has, I think there's three stages. What's the, the first one? The, stage, the bloom stage. Bloom. That's the most mysterious stage. So what what does that do? It, it dispels all the carbon dioxide out into the ether. So it puts some hot water down into the bean cone. Yes. And then the 
the gas goes off into the ether, you say, yes, the biosphere? Dismissed as to, to where it, it belongs. It's okay. not in my house and not in my machine. And then what happens next? And then, and then you, it, it brews the... It goes to the brew stage? The brew stage. Is there a little LED light that signals you've moved, you've moved from bloom to brew? Yes. Mine Ooh, that was hard to get out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, from bloom to brew, uh, on the 6th, there's kind of a pulsing light. It's hypnotic. So it's like that Hitchcock movie, Bloom with a Brew. <laughs> Wasn't that made into a movie, though? I'm sure it was. Okay. Are we still recording? Yes. Here? Okay. After that, what comes next? Uh, then there's a... I don't know what the last stage is called. It's called it's Ready. Di- it's Ready. It's Ready. It's done. And then yeah. you drink it. Yes. Okay. So perfect. when the hot water comes out of the cone, yeah. does it pour into your soft hands? <laughs> No, it goes into a, 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 a steel, a stainless steel carafe. Okay. Uh, down through a Fibonacci head. Wow. Two hundred degree Fahrenheit water. Some uh, metallic veins thrown yeah, in there. It, there's veins. It all comes together into the perfect cup of coffee. What about uh, squirty plastic? Squirt? No, there's no squirty plastic. What no. about brackish tang and scorch pad? No tang. No scorch pad. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> if the listeners want to get in on this, and and how. How could they resist? What should they do? <laughs> well, all they got to do is go to RatioCoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O, and for a 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6, you just type in A-N-C-O into the coupon code box, boom, you're ready to go. What's that code again? A-N-C-O. One more time. A-N-C-O. Okay. Today's episode is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, a publishing company based in Indianapolis, Indiana. And Cambridge, Ca- Massachusetts. Cambridge, Massachusetts. For the last 40 years, they've been putting out Great stuff, affordable, readable, erudite translations of um, works from the classical world, but many other corners of, uh, of literature and history, too. Uh, I've used them a lot in my own courses, in my own reading. I like Hackett. How about you, Dave? What do you think? I love Hackett. Yeah. Not only do they issue all of these wonderful translations of Greek and Latin, uh, readable, idiomatic, Len Cresac, um, Stanley Lombardo, wonderful covers, affordable. Yes. But they publish, they are the exclusive publisher of Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata series. You really like that one. I love that. And in fact, Dr. Patrick Owens, we're going to break a little news right here. Dr. Patrick Owens is going to be on in just a few weeks to talk about a wide array of Latin curricula, including this one by Hackett. Do you think he'll uh, agree with you on this one? I think he'll like it. Absolutely. But we're going to be fair to all of them. That's our intention. Sounds great. So listener, if you want to score yourself some wonderful bargains on Hackett's massive catalog of humanities and literature, you need to go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com, enter the coupon code. What's that again, Jeff? A-N-2021. A-N-2021. And what kind of a deal are they going to get? It's huge. 20% off. Wait, did you say 20%? Yes, but I'm not even done. 20% off and free shipping. No way. Yep, drop the mic. That's incredible. Yep. 20% and free shipping. Yep. Hackettpublishing.com. Check it out. Don't wait. Today's (laughs) episode is also brought to you by Ad Astra Coffee Roasters. Based in Hillsdale, Michigan, Patrick Whalen and his crew brewing up some delicious coffee. Jeff, you like the Tenebris? I love the Tenebris. I love the Las Lajas, the Huehuetenango. Tenebris is my favorite. Right. But everything I've gotten from them has been great. What about the Poetry Series? The Poetry Series, I mean, the the packaging is so attractive. It is. Poetry, it's got the Ziploc pouch, keeps your coffee fresh. It's excellent, excellent stuff. Yep, from top to bottom. And if our Ad Nauseam Loyal listeners want to score for themselves some of this great coffee, what should they do? They should go to adastraroasters.com, A-D-A-S-T-R-A roasters.com, uh, go to the coupon code box, type in A-N-A-A, and they get 10% off anything they order 
uh, and they also they also have monthly subscriptions. That yeah, they can check out the monthly subscriptions. You get delicious coffee delivered to you each month according to a set and affordable schedule. Do it. All right. So as we get back into it, um, as promised, Ken, you're going to tell us is that the prison that is identified there in Philippi is that the place where Paul and Silas were imprisoned? I think it's very unlikely. Uh, sorry, man. Pause a moment for disappointment. <laughs> Very unlikely for for several reasons. Number one, archaeologically, it is built as a cistern, and seems unlike any other prison that would be known. And the Romans didn't build many prisons. Their tendency was to uh, inflict punishments immediately mm-hmm. or release people immediately after a good whipping. And of course, Paul and Silas were whipped. Yes. Much more likely to be connected with the story of Paul and Silas, I think, is the rostrum, or the bima, as it would be called in Greek, which is right across the street. At the north side of the forum, on its center, are the remains of a platform. What's left there today is of the second century rebuilding of the uh, forum, but immediately under them are the remains of the first century forum. And that presumably would have been the place where Paul and Silas were arraigned, confronted with the charges, uh, stripped in public, and whipped. For whatever reason, they didn't disclose their Roman citizenship until the next day. Uh, But what was happening, of course, in their abuse, their public abuse in this fashion, was illegal. To inflict these punishments on a Roman citizen was illegal. More than likely then, if they were um, detained, they would have been detained near the residence, the official residence of the praetor. The praetorium is the normal place for an imprisonment, as Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, for example. Uh, And the praetorium is nowhere near the location of the so-called prison. In addition, uh, the so-called prison would have been constructed more than likely after the first century. In fact, some people date it. There are frescoes inside which indicate that it was a place of veneration among early Christians after the 6th century, after the destruction of Basilica A, which stands immediately on top of it. Uh, So it became a center of pilgrimage, and the frescoes prove it. But um, at the 1st century date, it's very unlikely that it would have been uh, a prison. It was a cistern. Uh, providing for storage of rainwater during the dry seasons of the year, and most likely it served the population that was passing on the road immediately in front of it and in the forum below. It reminds me of that um, in Athens, uh, the Hill of the Muses or Mount Philippopus, the uh, uh, the, the prison of, of Socrates, which is that kind of cave in mm-hmm. the side of the hill, where of course the most more likely one is right off the Agora, right? Yeah, the Desmaterian yeah. and but the they, Agora. They, they, find, they find a, a place that kind of looks the part, a cave, yeah. a cave, and then they, they attach, the legend attached to that, which is interesting in and of itself. But, yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, Ken, uh, with respect to the prison in Philippi, uh, as early as the 6th century after Christ, the spot was venerated because of perhaps misidentification. The Christians so. thought maybe this was where, so they laid down mosaics that depict sacred scenes and so forth. And uh, from yeah. that point on... Fragmentary frescoes on the walls uh, seem to show that it was a place of prayer and veneration, Mm -hmm. at least by the 7th century. Mm -hmm. And then additional paintings were added, I think, in the 10th century, if I recall the Mm -hmm. uh, excavator's report correctly. 
And then you were saying that um, the forum was rebuilt in the second century. That's right. Was that a result of earthquake damage? There might have been quakes, although the quakes at this stage are are not well documented. Much more um, vivid ones occurred uh, in the early sixth century and again in the early seventh century. But um, uh, Philippi's center reached its acme, you might say, under the Antonines, and particularly under the reign of Marcus Aurelius. So that's about 170. 160s and 170s, when the entire forum was rebuilt, and major new temples were constructed to the imperial cult. A library was built on the east side, a curia, a center for administration was built on the west side, and a large market area was built on the south side of the forum. So what you see today is largely the second century form of the Roman Forum, but excavations have proved that the first century forum lies immediately underneath. And so it was uh, built just on top of the ruins of the old forum? Some of the old ones was demolished in, um, in the interest of uh, creating new space. Right. I, if I recall correctly, the eastern and western sides were somewhat expanded, and the whole portico on the south was added. So when the uh, ad nauseum Greece tour, May 2022, when we go to Greece, Jeff, are we going to go to Philippi? I think we sh- I think we need to go to Philippi. Yeah, definitely. It's not right. a it's not a long bus ride. You no. take Athens up to Thessaloniki. That's about three to five hours. A little longer. I slept most of the way. <laughs> I didn't have to drive. So. Okay, right. that that refurbishment, that rebuilding of Philippi, um, is there is do you have the sense that that's um, already kind of a part of kind of things moving east? It is definitely part of things moving east, and um, ultimately the influence from Constantinople begins to outweigh the influence from Rome architecturally. So the later churches, for example, bear much closer resemblance to the Constantinople churches than they do to the basilicas of the West. So even in uh, Marcus Aurelius's day, it's already kind of the the pendulum is starting to shift? Okay. As you know, under Marcus Aurelius, the empire began falling apart from the north, and the earliest incursions of Visigoths actually are dated to the third century Mm. in in the Balkans. They don't reach Italy until the fourth century. Hmm. So following along a little bit in the narrative in Acts 16, it was at this point then that the Uh, The earth shook and the chains fell off, the text says, and the doors opened and uh, Paul and Silas didn't exit the prison, though they could have. The jailer runs in, you know, about to take his own life and uh, Paul calms him down. The next day, then they are taken out of the prison. And then, as you were saying, now they mention the fact that they are Roman citizens. Um, I've been asked several times as I teach on these things uh, by young people and old, why was it illegal to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? Why was it? Yes. Now, the answer I've given isn't so good, so I'd like to hear yours. <laughs> I'm not sure my answer would be that great either. It's against the law for a Roman to be physically abused without a systematic trial. So is that just a, a protection of the Roman person? Is that the idea? Well, it's one of the marks of, uh, or one of the privileges of citizenship that corporal punishment cannot be inflicted without due process. Whereas an owner of a slave could put a slave to death without penalty, uh, and a non-citizen could be abused in public without any penalty. Um, So, uh, yeah, uh, it's hard to explain why Paul waited. Some people have suggested this was his strategy for gaining some um, influence over the magistrates, the the praetors. as a way of protecting the believers who he left behind when he left the city. Uh, but 
There's no obvious explanation for why he didn't disclose his citizenship while under being while under being whipped. Right, because he uses the fact later to his advantage uh, as the basis of his appeal uh, to Caesar. Also, I also find um, a lot of my students will come to uh, my classes when we talk about this kind of these things with kind of the assumption that in uh, if they know anything about ancient Rome and early Christianity, the assumption is that the, the Romans kind of you know, brought down the, the jackboots on the, on the throats of the Christians from, from day one. And it, it comes from, I think a lot of it comes from kind of the, uh, the follow-up from like Ben-Hur and, sure. and kind of these popular mythologies. Hollywood. So what's your sense of, of you know, the, the level of tolerance in, in the first century? You, you, you mentioned there's, there's Jewish women going down to the riverside. I mean, what, what's it like? I think there's a degree of anti-Semitism, certainly in Roman colonies like this one. So, for example, when the charges are brought before the magistrates, these people are Jews, is the first thing they said, yes. who are teaching something unacceptable to Romans. So there's definite anti-Semitism. Christians were not distinguished from Jews in the first century, right. and to a large degree, not even in the second century. And persecutions that have been documented, like the great persecution in Rome in the year 67 and so on, are, um, tend to be regional, tend to be short-lived, and often are inspired by uh, the interests of the local uh, power structure. So, as you say, uh, persecution was not universal in these early centuries. The first universal persecution we have evidence for is under uh, the reign of Decius in the third century. And subsequently, things got very difficult for Christians, but they were not a threat to the Roman authorities at this early stage. And so when they were punished, it was usually for reasons other than religion. So Decius, for the listener, is about 249, I think? 249 to 51, I believe. He ruled only two years, I think. Right. So for and the most part, it was more, more like we see in that, that exchange of letters between Pliny and, and Trajan. Uh, Trajan says, if there's a problem, deal with it, but otherwise don't go kicking down doors. And you also suggested in your statement just now, quite interestingly, that uh, the persecutions were often uh, locally motivated. That is, an individual maybe had another reason for hating Christians. It was perhaps an economic reason or something like that. And then they would use the Roman authority to get what they wanted out of the situation rather than an official policy on the part of the Roman government of discrimination against Christians. Is that accurate? That's a common... Uh, a feature in the book of Acts. Most Romans are presented in very positive light in the book of Acts. Some of them save Paul's life, and right. they're, they're presented as, uh, as champions of, of order, of peace, and uh, of legal representation. Um, in the case of the trial before Gallio in Corinth, which is Acts 18, I think it is, uh, we have a similar thing. Jewish rivals of Paul right. drag him up in front of the rostrum to appear before the governor Gallio, and the case is thrown out of court before Paul even gets a chance to speak because Gallio says these are matters that inf that involve you, yes. not Rome. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to get involved in disputes about your Jewish law. Basically, right. he says right. it's and also it's also the local magistrates that calm down the riot in Ephesus too. That stands up and says. Yeah, and says, uh, you know, we're all, everybody's going to be charged with rioting if you don't disperse, and they call mm -hmm. it court. There's a way to deal with this, mm -hmm. right, right. And, of course, that incident in uh, Corinth, I'm saying this facetiously, is the origin of that entirely plausible correspondence between Paul and Seneca, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> Gallio, whom Ken mentioned, is the brother, brother of uh, the famous philosopher Seneca. There's the inscription right there, right, <laughs> that you can see. Yeah. Yep. 
And the inscription in Delphi, which records the date in which Gallio ruled, yes. is the whole basis for Pauline chronology. Could you say a little bit more about that? I remember its location in, it's right past the Delphic charioteer when you... Yeah, it's a fragmentary inscription in the Museum at Delphi, and it records the dates of Gallio's governorship of Achaia. And um, that allows us to, to date Paul's visit to Corinth, which in turn allows us to date um, his... Uh, the sequence of events in his second missionary journey. Mm. So it's a it's a priceless artifact, really, in yeah, terms of chronology. It's clear that Gallio was governor of in Corinth in the year sixty or sixty one, mm -hmm. and everything else falls into place from that chronological uh, detail. Mm. So we, uh, we're going to end up, before too long, talking a little bit about uh, Ken's background as a classicist and archaeologist and some of his archaeological methods and interests in the, uh, the city of Corinth. Uh, but we should probably say a few more things about Philippi. What are some of the, the most compelling structures of the city from your perspective? Well, the most exciting building in Philippi, from my perspective, is the Basilica of Paul, so named in a mosaic inscription which was discovered in the 70s to the east of the Forum, the Roman Forum. And it is the oldest datable Christian structure in Greece, and one of the oldest in the whole Mediterranean. Um, the inscription says something to this effect. The Bishop Porphyrius laid the embroidery, which is one, <clears throat> one way of describing the mosaic floor, of the Basilica of Paul in Christ. This tells us the name of the building. It tells us also the date because Porphyrius is a dated bishop of, of Philippi who participated in the uh, Council of Sertica, modern Sophia. That council at Sertica took place in the year 344, which means that the floor of the, uh, the mosaic floor of this early Christian structure was laid somewhere between the legalization of Christianity in 313 and 350, roughly which makes it the oldest datable Christian structure in Greece and one of the oldest in the Mediterranean. It's a beautiful rectangular building, completely covered with mosaics of typical fourth century design. Nothing explicitly Christian other than the inscription, which names the church. And uh, uh, there's also an invocation inscription. A man named Priscus, another Christian, asks the Lord to take care of him and his whole family. He presumably was another donor yeah. of the floor. But another fascinating thing about this building is it's immediately adjacent to and not entirely replacing an earlier Macedonian tomb, which represents a hero cult, a burial of a young man named Exequius or something to that effect, uh, lies directly under this Christian church, which seems to suggest that one pagan holy place uh, was replaced by a new Christian holy place named for Paul, and it's the only church I know of in Greece that we know was named in antiquity for Paul um, without destroying the earlier tradition. Christianity has replaced the pagan shrine, but not entirely eliminated it. It's still there. In fact, part of the wall of the hero cult, uh, the hero shrine, was used as the new wall of this Christian basilica. And subsequently, two more churches, one octagonal in form, were built on top of this early fourth century church. And uh, Helmut Kuster of Harvard University has actually argued that Paul was originally buried at this site, really? not in Rome. The traditions that Paul was buried in Rome are actually rather late, fourth or fifth century. 
And Custer has argued that one of the adjacent rooms uh, to this octagon, which lies over the earlier church, has uh, facilities for holy water. There is a, f a system of plumbing which allows for water to move from a sacred, it looks like a grave, into a receptacle where people can draw the holy water, very much as under the Church of St. Uh, Demetrius in Thessaloniki. And so this is the basis for Custer's argument that possibly this it marks the original uh, burial site of mm. Paul. Wow. I had never heard that. Me either. Yeah. So he's not at uh, St. Paul's outside the walls, according well, to Custer? Uh, Helmut Custer is not an archaeologist, but he and Christos Bakirtsis, who is one of the later excavators of Philippi, he's from the University of Thessaloniki, uh, have both argued that this is a plausible explanation for the large complex, ecclesiastical complex, that developed around this early nucleus. So all of this lies immediately east of the Forum, and it ultimately developed into a complex of ecclesiastical buildings, including an episcopion, that is a formal residence for the bishop, and a large baptistry that suggests uh, this was the cathedral, so to speak, the center of the Christian community in the fourth and fifth centuries. Hmm. So only an archaeologist would call the fourth century late, for starters. <laughs> But also, if, if the story that his head uh, bounced three times and it was chopped off at the three fountains uh, along the um, mm -hmm. along the Via Ostia, right. right? If that isn't true, then his, his body would have had to be taken uh, from Rome all the way back to Philippi. How yeah. plausible is that? Kester sort of uh, fudges on this point. He says it might have been a cenotaph. In other words, an empty tomb, but regarded by the Philippians as the eternal dwelling place of uh, Paul's remains. So a cenotaph, that's an unfamiliar uh, idea to most of us. I mean, you, you gave a definition of it, but the idea is that it's a, a stone that marks where he would have been buried or the place that's considered his burial, even if there's no body. Is that right? Another good example is Dante's tomb in Florence. Mm -hmm. Right. Dante was not buried in Florence. He was buried in Ravenna. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a tomb for him in, in Florence. Mm. Kuster, he, does, he, does he doubt Paul's martyrdom in Rome? He argues that the evidence for Paul's martyrdom in Rome is late, and his, his burial in Rome is unattested. Huh. Uh, what okay. about Timothy? Is that too much of a digression? Is Timothy in Rome at the Basilica? I think the traditional site of Timothy's tomb is in the uh, sunken chamber below right. Paul's tomb, isn't right. it? Yes, yeah, at St. Paul's outside the walls. Right. Um, I don't know what the... What the uh, evidence for that is? I thought maybe Kuster had him somewhere else in the world as well. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I, I just, I, mean, I just always thought that you know where you know Acts ends and where Paul ends up, and, mm -hmm. and kind of dovetailing with the Neronian persecution. It seems it's like a, a natural. Seems like it, yeah. but you know there are many, including the translators of the NIV, who regard the a fourth missionary journey of Paul as very likely. Hmm. So to mention. Yeah, to Spain and possibly to the Balkans, because your mention earlier of the, the, the notice of Nicopolis, for example, Titus is instructed to meet Paul in Nicopolis and bring his books or his clothes or something. Um, that does not seem to fit into the first or second or third missionary journeys as they're reported in earlier Acts. So that's, I think, Second Timothy 4 is where Paul is instructing him to bring my parchments and so forth, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. If I could ask I, kind of a more 
kind of personal question. Um, and this dovetails with um, something that Dave and I have talked about, essentially something we talked with, about with Ross King last week is, you know, kind of the, the purpose and the value of travel and kind of this very tangible um, encounter with the past. Mm-hmm. In your study of and your travels to Philippi, um, how does that kind of shape kind of your your notions, your view of the past, the biblical narrative, um, how, does, how, does the, how do you experience that kind of more viscerally? Well, you know, there's an emotive quality about being in places where you uh, have heard stories from your earliest youth. Um, last year, I got to Israel for the first time, and uh, there, there's something very moving about being in certain places. Uh, I struggle with the idea of holy space, uh, that is, of, of actual locations that are inherently holy. People are holy. Experiences can be holy. I don't think places can be holy. Nonetheless, there's something deeply evocative about walking where Paul walked on that road. Yeah. And uh, so the narratives, which in a sense have been with us since our uh, Sunday school papers, suddenly take on a deeper meaning when you're there and seeing the same landscape that uh, ancients would have seen. And I've had the same experience in visiting Socrates' prison or the Acropolis or any number of other ancient sites. Uh, The the words on a page suddenly come alive Mm -hmm. when you are in certain places. And reading ancient texts, for example, the speech at the Areopagus, reading the speech at the Areopagus, Mm gives it a a new kind of uh, emotive quality, I'll say. It doesn't change one's understanding of uh, of the content in any profound way, but it adds a dimension of richness that is impossible to acquire without actually being on site. I think that's well said. I yeah. have the same experience. I'm I'm skeptical when somebody says, "Oh well, you know, I've been to this this part of Palestine, so I know that that part of Scripture has been misunderstood for two thousand years." I'm a skeptical of that. <laughs> but the you know, the emotive and evocative qualities uh, they're really impossible to match. I remember when we were in Italy and we went out to Capri, and uh, you pointed out to me. This is the spot where Paul sailed uh, between Capri and the mainland and uh, landed at uh, Puteoli there, uh, where he took the Via Appia north to Rome. Mm -hmm. That's memorable, Mm -hmm. because really the landscape in that short amount of time hasn't changed, or very, very little. And so I'm looking at the same things that, you know, Paul would have seen. Mm -hmm. There's a connection uh, to reality. Yeah. That's great. We're, I think we're, we're going to need to, I would love a transcription of what Ken just said. Just, it, and I, I find that, you know, where I'm teaching now, there's there's a growing kind of pushback against kind of study away um, as, you know, in, you know, this idea that in this digital age, um, you can you can experience these things from the comfort of your own room. Why do you need to go there? And so I'm always looking for ways to kind of express those intangibles that feeling that, that, as you say, that kind of evocative um, hmm. uh, appeal of these places. But Well, another aspect of it is that in traveling, you, you encounter something other, something very different from your own immediate experience. Yes. And in traveling in Greece, and this is certainly true in Italy as well, you, you see a living memory of an ancient past, which is still a vital part of the national identity. Yes, 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 yes. Yep. That's very well said. And I have this memory, in fact. I think I was there with you, Ken, or maybe it was young, I don't remember, 
uh, in Delphi, right? I had just purchased this fitness watch. It was going to make me super fit. <laughs> just just by virtue of wearing it, I was going to become, you know, totally uh, ripped and healthy and so forth. Yes. And I took the watch off and set it on the nightstand and uh, left the hotel without oh, it. No. Christiana assured me, oh, we'll just call the hotel. They'll mail it to Athens. We're not going to be in Athens for two more weeks. It can certainly make the trip from uh, Delphi to Athens in two weeks' time. Guess what? It didn't make the trip. <laughs> it didn't make the trip. Apparently, uh, not only could the, the watch not make me healthy, it wasn't even healthy itself because it couldn't travel from Delphi to Athens, you know, through the mail. And a, but that that's memorable. Now, you know, I've left a little part of myself in, uh, in Delphi there. Right. right. A- attached my intellectual knowledge to something experiential. Yeah. For Americans, just kind of the, the notion of, of like what, what's old. Uh, Americans tend to have a much different notion of that, right? And you go to these places that have these deep, deep ancient memories that go well past 245 years or whatever. When you see on the student's face, just kind of that, you know, coming to grips with that kind of wake up call of, mm. of um, the depth of the history here is, is extraordinary. And for Christians, I think it helps us understand that the world in which these characters lived was not our world. Yeah. Um, so that some of what is being said, especially in the epistles, has to be understood in the context of a very different cultural setting. Right. A multicultural setting, but an ancient setting, mm-hmm. which is not ours. Right. 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 So um, in the time we have left, which is probably about 10 minutes or so, we could extend this, I guess, as long as we want, maybe ad nauseum. Uh, <laughs> Ken, could you tell us a little bit of your own uh, biography and background? How did you get into classics? Why classics? Mm. Why archaeology? What's your experience in archaeology? Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll try to be brief. Uh, I'm a native of Grand Rapids, went to Calvin College where I had these two gentlemen as students in a later time. Um, I originally intended uh, as a career path to become a high school Latin teacher. In my day, this was the early 60s, High schools taught Latin as the default language. I mean, maybe there was one other available, but Latin was the primary language. And I had had three years of high school Latin in a very satisfying context where the teachers were excellent and uh, I really got excited about the ancient world. So that was my goal when I came to Calvin, to become a Latin teacher. In my sophomore year, toward the end of my sophomore year, one of my professors, Robert Otten, whom you may remember, pulled me aside and said, Ken, have you ever thought about teaching at the college level? And I said, well, I hadn't really thought about it seriously. What would it take? Well, you'd have to know Greek, of course. And this was halfway through college. I said, how would I do that with two years left? Well, you take first year Greek in your junior year, and then you take six Greek courses in your senior year. This is what I did. Uh, so I learned Greek in my last two years of college, of, uh, of Calvin. They hadn't sent too many people on to graduate school in those days. So he said, um, I'd like you to, to apply to 10 graduate schools. He gave me a list. This guy had a lot of plans for your life, didn't yeah. he? <laughs> well, this is a warning to all teachers that beware of what you tell your students right. because they may take you seriously. <laughs> Uh, Otten really changed my life in that respect. He was a wonderful teacher, very gruff, very difficult person, but a wonderful teacher. And uh, so ultimately I applied to 10 grad schools and this is remarkable for anyone applying today, but I got into all of them. And um, the draft was also hanging over us in those days. So in 1968, I graduated from Calvin and I was told to report on the very day of graduation, report from my army physical. 
virtually all men in Grand Rapids were being drafted immediately after completing their college deferment. If I can just interrupt for a moment. Listener, you might think that a, an aspiring Latin student reporting for his army physical isn't going to do too well. But Jeff and I have traveled in Greece and Italy with Ken on repeated occasions. A man will walk you into right. the ground. You've never been able to keep up. That's right. <laughs> these, these massive strides. He's, I get this from my mother and grandfather who were, who were also ardent walkers. Um, so at any rate, to, to avoid the draft, I immediately applied for conscientious objector. But Army does not recognize <coughs> selective con- conscientious objection to the Vietnam War. It only uh, recognizes complete um, objection to war of any kind. So I knew I would not be given conscientious objector status, but it bought me enough time to get a a semester of graduate school in, in the fall semester of 1968, before I was drafted. And then providentially, while I was in basic training, with the advice of other Calvin students who had gone before me, I applied to be trained as an Army chaplain uh, assistant. Uh, since it was one of the few um, positive, potentially positive roles one could play in army life. So I applied to become a chaplain assistant in the army, and I was uh, selected for that role. Instead of being trained for the Vietnamese language, which I discovered would have been my assignment otherwise, I ended up at the army chaplain school, and because I had taught a Latin class as a Calvin senior, they pulled me out to teach at the army chaplain school as new waves of chaplain assistant trainees came through. So I spent two delightful years in New York City um, under the Verrazano Bridge teaching things like um, the history and mission of the chaplaincy and the funds and supply management in the chaplain's office and so on and so forth and how to set up your camp for the chaplain and how to defend him because they're supposed to be non-combatants. At any rate, uh, finally, I was able to return to graduate school, and it wasn't until my third, second year of graduate school in the 70s, early 70s, that I took any archaeology at Princeton. Never had any archaeology before that time, but uh, T. Leslie Shear, who was one of the um, great excavators of the Athenian Agora, Evelyn Harrison, who was one of the great uh, uh, scholars in Greek sculpture, were two of my teachers. And I just got very excited about the ancient world and its visual aspects. So when you when you went to went to grad school, you didn't have an idea. I want to specialize in this. Okay. Uh, at Princeton, you were required, among other things, to select one special field in addition to classical lit, classical um, uh, history, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I took archaeology as my special field. In 1973. With the help of my uh, advisors at Princeton, I was admitted to the summer program at the American School of Classical Studies in Athens, and that was my first experience in Europe. Uh, In six weeks, we visited, oh, I would say 50 or 60 archaeological sites. Um, We had to make reports at several of them, so I made reports at Tiran's Mycenaean site and at Gorton on Crete, where an early Greek law code is still inscribed. marvelous experience meeting many of the leading excavators of Greece at the time and that sort of set the course um, the the physical aspects of antiquity became much more important to me than they had ever been before and even though my degree and my PhD my PhD dissertation were in Greek literature Herodotus. on Herodotus yeah. um, archaeology was always close to my heart 
When I finally received appointment to Calvin, which happened in the late 70s, um, where I spent 36 years mainly teaching the languages, one of the purposes for my hiring was to introduce a course in Greek and Roman art and architecture, um, and also to teach the Greek mythology class, which had already been initiated. And from that point on, um, the visual dimension of classical antiquity became part of my teaching load in the art and architecture class. And then in 1985, we started annual trips to Greece or Italy on an alternating basis. And I did, I think, 16 of them to Greece and uh, 11 or 12 of them to Italy over the years, uh, which obviously reinforce at every visit your interest in the material and your understanding of its importance. I find that students who have been to these places <clears throat> have a much more lively understanding of what the classical world was like than you can acquire through uh, digital pictures and uh, and uh, literature by itself. Right. I remember you had on your desk when I was a student, you had a little uh, uh, framed caricature. Uh, I think it was Herodotus or yourself in a toga or something. I think maybe your brother Jim Bratt, the famous historian, gave you this oh. uh, wany weedy postremum calcatrawi <laughs> with respect to Herodotus. I came, I saw, I kicked his blank. <laughs> yeah, my brother-in-law, Marv Meyer, was the cartoonist. Okay. Jeff could cartoon in this way, too. Right. Yeah. That made an impact on me. I thought, okay, <laughs> when you get to the end of your dissertation... You have some sense like that. I've yeah. I've done something. Right, right, right. So, yeah. so uh, Ken, what um, what are your what are the most endearing and pleasant aspects of traveling in Greece? What what stands out to you most in your sixteen different visits? Yeah, well, as you as you know from having been there, it's a spectacular landscape, with land, sea, and uh, and uh, rocks and pine trees. Uh, so the landscape itself is fascinating and beautiful. But its historical depth is what's really appealing. I mean, you're traveling in a land where you know a lot of the history and you know a lot of the characters. And to be where all of these things you've studied actually happened is, as I've said already, uh, an emotive experience uh, unlike any other I've had. Um, in addition, modern Greek people are the most hospitable and easy to talk with. Mm -hmm of any foreign folks I've met. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, being in a land that shows such hospitality, my wife and I have lived there for a semester on sabbatical, and I've been there many times, built friendships, I've gone to churches in Greece. Um, these, uh, these friendships with the Greek people are among the, the things I value most as well. And how about the, the least endearing and least pleasant aspects of traveling? <laughs> Anytime you visit a foreign culture, you, you immediately begin to appreciate aspects of your own. Right. To some degree, that's, that's true about the way things are done in Greece. Greek bureaucracy is very difficult to deal with. Um, I remember on my sabbatical when I <clears throat> applied for permission to see certain things in certain museums, it took literally three different offices, three months, to come through with permissions. And then things were not where they were supposed to be. And so I ha had the wonderful experience in Thessaloniki of finding an inscription I had been searching for 
in a spider web infested storage room where it wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> it's now displayed in beautiful lighting in the Byzantine Museum in Thessaloniki, but this was a thing I had been looking all over for and it wasn't where it was supposed to be. Was the so, Ark of the Covenant right next to it, <laughs> incidentally? Yeah, it's a country where if you leave a watch on the nightstand, you're not going to get it. No. <laughs> so as we wrap up, uh, Ken, do you have any funny stories you can tell about my fabulous co-host, Dr. Jeff Winkle? Something to make our listeners laugh? <laughs> well, um, my first uh, real uh, experience with Jeff in Greece <clears throat> was on a memorable trip in 1991 when uh, older listeners will remember the first Gulf War was about to break out. Um, as a result of that threat, only nine people went on that particular interim. It had been planned for a group of 30. And so we ended up traveling all over Greece in a van and a car. And when we entered Turkey, because there were some Turkish sites on that trip as well, uh, the guards were surprised that Americans were crossing the border at that time. But Jeff was a, a really funny participant in that, in that tour. I remember we had three older folks along. <clears throat> and Jeff would come up with these um, zingers, usually not mentioned in their presence. But for example, uh, we had talked about various ways in which language changes from one culture to another, and the expression knocked up came up. Uh, British people will say, I'm going to knock him up, meaning I'm going to wake him in the morning by knocking on his door. And Jeff re uh, remarked one morning, I still have this in my notebook, which I checked yesterday. Jeff remarked one morning, um, who wants to go knock up the De Boers? <laughs> and everyone just fell apart. Yeah. Um, he was a great mimic. Uh, so another episode was when we were going through the Valley of Tempe, one of our participants, an older man, read from his guidebook the story of Daphne being transformed from a woman into a tree. And uh, yeah, um, uh, Willis de Boer, who was a wonderful man, but had tremulous voice whenever he got emotional, was describing how her extending arms transformed into beautiful branches. <laughs> and I recall that throughout the rest of the trip, this moment was reenacted several times. <laughs> that sounds like Jeff. Uh, uh, repetition as a, a core aspect of humor. Yeah, exactly. repetition <laughs> and absurdity. And when I look through my notebook from that trip yesterday, um, I also observed that Jeff had written and signed a declaration that he was, I quote, I announce that I am the leading nerd of the trip. <laughs> Apparently, he and David Becker, one of the other guys, had a had a competition going as to who was the big, greater nerd. Yes, Jeff right. wins easily. Yeah. <laughs> it was a close for a while, Dad. I don't I know. I remember David. He declared the charioteer of Delphi was the nerd of Delphi, and I think that's where it all started. Mm. And then it kind of yeah. Mm. Went uh, anyway. But that that was a that was a great trip. Um, and and also, but really kind of strange too, because I remember we saw. I think we were in, in Olympia when we saw some TV monitor that had changed from crisis in the Gulf to war in the Gulf. And yeah. that's how we learned that yeah. uh, hostilities had broken out. And mm -hmm. yeah, it was a little tense. Yeah. And the embassy warned us not to be conspicuous in any public place <clears throat> because the Greeks in general were not happy about what, uh, no. what America was doing in the Near East. So you put your purple capes and uh, <laughs> pheasant feather hats back right. in your duffel bags. As you we did. I mean, no, no guides. I mean, Ken did all the guiding. Right. And he, uh, Ken drove the van on these perilous mountain roads up mm. to up to Delphi and down and mm. we had a car following us and so I mean there was there was kind of a freedom in that but it was also 
it was also... It was a little tense, and I'm sure your parents were more anxious sure. than you were. Right, right. No, yep. I credit them for... As far as David is concerned, I, you know, David is one of these very disciplined men who is, uh, maintains this uh, outward facade of seriousness. I, I know that he was an improv player in his college days, and, and, and at moments of, uh, uh, I don't know whether it's weakness or uh, <laughs> fragility, uh, his, his witty part will come out. And on these... Uh, these broadcasts, I've noticed that your wit is is constantly there. So I know you're a funny guy, but I've co-led two trips with you, and I can't think of a single embarrassing thing you've ever done. So I think we need to have another trip. When it has to be a professional, you keep a professional. Yeah, do I? You do. You're, you're well, a rock like that. Well, yeah. thank you. One really memorable uh, episode with Ken was um, we were sitting at the Hotel Philippos, I think, uh, eating Spanish peanuts and looking at the Acropolis you know those those peanuts with the red skin on yes. them. As the as the sunset, we could see it gleaming on the Acropolis. That's a pleasant yeah. memory. That's a beautiful memory, and I think it was the last day we were uh, in Athens, and that was my last trip with students. Yeah, that was that was really memorable. Well, Ken, we are so glad that we had uh, the opportunity to spend this time with you. What a rich, fabulous resource yeah. of uh, knowledge about Greek history and biblical history and archaeology. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you so much, and, um, and we've said this to you before, but you, you've been so influential in both Dave and, and my life. It was that trip to Greece that I decided this is what I want to do, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the other classes we took with you, and, and uh, you've been such a foundational person and an inspiration to both of us, and right. so we want to thank you for that, too. Yeah, in fact, the, the story you told about Bob Otten telling you to take Greek, you're the one who told me to take Latin. <laughs> <laughs> I was studying Greek, and I said, I'm not sure what I'll do with this. And you said, well, you should probably study Latin also. So you did both languages. Okay. <laughs> just in college, right? Yes. Yeah. So similar to Ken in that way. Yeah. But. Well, thank you, guys. It's been um, wonderful to see you both develop as scholars, and, and I appreciate what you are continuing to do for the field. Thank, thank you. you. We'll, we'll keep the uh, group hug off the air. <laughs> we'll do that after we wrap up here. Well, we have to get out of here, don't we, Jeff? We do. Yep. And uh, as we always do, uh, big thanks to Mishka. Our engineer, who puts this all together, makes us sound and uh, look much better than we do. Uh, thanks that, to... That's not a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Sound and look better than we do. Crayola could do that. That's exactly right. She's still... She, uh, Mishka, you do great work. We're um, so thankful. Th- so thankful. Thanks to Ken Tamplin and Scott Venzen for the great music that you hear throughout the podcast. Uh, Dave, tell us about the Moss Method, would you? Well, we are firing on all cylinders at mossmethod.com. We are offering a Greek course. It's only $299. Forget this. 40 video lessons. $299. 40 video lessons. 40 assignments. Six quizzes. Two exams. Constant access to me via your cell phone, your email, whatever. You can talk to me. We can talk about your Greek. Take you from, from neophyte to erudite. That's right. It's self-paced, expert, and accessible. Check out mossmethod.com. Mossmethod.com. And what do we have for next week? Next week, uh, we are talking about uh, Gorgias's encomium of Helen. What's an encomium? Sounds Enco- like a sandwich. It, it, it's a tasty sandwich. Right, exactly. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a praise. A word of praise. A word of praise. Exactly right. This is something you translated back I in did. the day. I yeah. did. So you know it well. Um, and we're going to talk about not only that, but about Helen and um, kind of, uh, notions of ancient notions of beauty. Right. Was Helen innocent or guilty for what she did? Right. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yes. So yeah. that's coming up next week. And uh, Jeff, I believe you get our gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from comedian and uh, former late night host Jay Leno, who says, 
I went to McDonald's yesterday and said, I'd like some fries. And the girl behind the counter says, would you like fries with that? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. See ya. 